This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in an abbreviated one-hour version weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com, thrice weekly on the U.K.-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. And we are now airing on CKUW in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Winnipeg. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station, email us at chuck at com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to our show and why you'd love to hear it carried on in your community. So my guess is a lot of you who are listening right now have taken an Uber. It's convenient during non-surge pricing hours. It can be affordable. The app is pretty straightforward and it takes little to no effort to order an Uber. The problem is the way Uber expanded globally. At least that's what the newly released Uber Files, a global journalism collaboration between the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ, and media outlets including The Guardian, The Washington Post, and Le Monde, among others, have shown. As the ICIJ reports and the Uber Files reveal, the ride-hailing juggernaut stormed into markets around the world, used stealth technology and evasive practices to thwart regulators and law enforcement in at least six countries, and deployed a phalanx of lobbyists to court prominent government officials, including former key Obama administration officials, U.S. ambassadors, and French President Emmanuel Macron. In a few minutes, we'll speak with senior editor at the ICIJ, Dean Starkman, who joins us to discuss Uber Files. Here at This Is How, we have had the great pleasure of interviewing ICIJ investigative journalists on a number of issues, including secret U.S. drone missions, Swiss leaks, which exposed how the Swiss branch of one of the world's biggest banks, HSBC, profited from doing business with tax dodgers and criminals around the world, the FinCEN files, which revealed the role of global banks in industrial-scale money laundering and the bloodshed and suffering that flow in its wake. The Paradise Papers, which revealed corporate tax havens around the world, as well as the Panama Papers and Pandora, uh, Pandora Papers, which shined light on the rogue offshore finance industry. You can follow and you should follow ICIJ on Twitter at ICIJ.org. You can find out more about ICIJ as well as all their work on the Uber files and everything else that they've done at their website, ICIJ.org. Dean is a fellow in residence at the Center for Media, Data, and Society and a visiting lecturer at the School of Public Policy at the Central European University in Budapest. Dean is the author of 2014's The Watchdog That Didn't Bark, the financial crisis and the disappearance of investigative journalism, an acclaimed analysis of business press failures prior to the 2008 financial crisis, and a theoretical framework for journalism's past, present, and future. Previously, Dean ran the Columbia Journalism Review's business section, The Audit, a web-based provider of media criticism, reporting, and analysis. Most recently, Dean was Wall Street correspondent for the LA Times, reporting on the intersection of finance and society, 
from New York, an investigative reporter for more than two decades. Dean covered white-collar crime and national real estate for the Wall Street Journal and helped lead the Providence Journal's investigative team to a Pulitzer Prize in 1994. Follow Dean on Twitter, at Dean Starkman. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian, how was your weekend? How have you been, sir? Yeah, no, it was pretty good. It was a good weekend of, um, honestly, not anything special in particular. Just, like, basically hanging out and uh, just, you know, following my creative hobbies of uh, writing. Oh, and, really? Uh, 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 like... Wrote, not just history stuff. Not just no, not just history stuff. I mean, I, I like when I say writing, it, it it's basically just nerd. Uh, <laughs> you'll okay, be, now you'll I you'll be bleeping to, that later. Now I need to bleep that. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, just role, like basically just role playing stuff, scenarios, backgrounds, world building, all that, all these. But things. all that stuff is informed by your study of history. Though. I mean, yeah, sure, sure. There is there is stuff that's that that informs that. Um, just in in terms of. I mean, if if you if you know history and you and you want to sort of like build a, a fantasy world that is it is much much richer, uh, because you can go into all the weird things that uh, people have done that are not you know us, um, you know white people, or you can go into the in, into the weird things that white people have done too. <laughs> My uh, girlie loves history and loves historical fiction, so I know exactly where you're coming from. My weekend was filled with me freaking out following my most recent surgery to fix my chronic digestive condition from which I've been suffering for nearly 15 years now. My surgeon told me that I had a 20% chance of an infection. Since I left the hospital, I've had a slight fever, which I was told there was nothing to worry about. When I asked my surgeon how I would be able to tell if I did have an infection, he told me that I would feel pain. He said the slight fever, which never really got over 100.4 degrees, was not significant and did not mean I had an infection. However, the slight fever never went away, and they prescribed three different kinds of painkillers, which means they knew I was in pain. And it's hard not to be in pain after a surgery that has left 35 staples in what I've been calling my frankenbelly. So I was freaking out since I was discharged from the hospital, believing I, in fact, have an infection. However, my temperature kept going down incrementally every day. Finally, yesterday, Sunday, it returned to normal. I'm still taking painkillers. I'm on a couple of them <laughs> as we speak, but the pain has become less and less, well, painful. So do I have an infection? Who knows? What happens if it is determined I do have an infection? I have no freaking idea, but I will know tomorrow when I see my surgeon in the late afternoon to have all 35 staples removed without any anesthesia whatsoever so i'm looking forward to that but aside from me freaking out about my health all weekend sebastian what is this week's question from hell uh this week's question from hell which is, is a good one <laughs> what is your god against that you want to see banned for everyone else my favorite part of the january 6th committee hearing so far is when they were interviewing a guy from the oath keepers and at one point he said thank the gods so I, uh, I think okay. he's into Nordic mythology. I'm pretty sure he's gonna. He's was on the, on the tip of his tongue. He was about to say, "I would like to thank the All Father for mm. my presence." Mm. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio, or you can direct it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email Chuck at This Is Hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. 
as we do every week following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Sebastian will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell in just a few moments. Again, the question from hell is, what is your God against that you want to see banned for everybody else? What is your God against that you want to see banned for everyone else? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell will receive your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, our coffee mug, the winter hat, everybody's favorite, the trucker's cap, or the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive containing dozens of interviews from the 21st century. You can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Brave enough to be streaming live. Dumb enough to be goofy. Stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. Oh. I, I know you uh, yes, do. Yes, I, I know. I know I do. I know I do. I just... Uh... It's been so long that so you've now, been doing an actual show, an yes, actual live yes, show. Yes, just just one week, uh, one week, and uh, you have to teach me all of it again. <laughs> anyway, this week's hangover cure, I have it, is berries and cherries. Cosmopolitan, yes, we're citing Cosmopolitan. <laughs> really, Chuck, we're citing Cosmopolitan. <laughs> I know. And possibly for the very first time in 26 years on, of being on air, Cosmopolitan, yes, that Cosmopolitan, <laughs> posted a story with the headline, Five Simple Hangover Cures That Can Offer res- Respite, Respite, I never know how to pronounce this, oh, let's go with after, this. after a wild night out. Party hard, rehabilitate harder, <sighs> which is a very Cosmo headline. It is. Cosmo reports alcohol can induce oxidative stress, a phenomenon caused by an imbalance between the production and accumulation of oxygen reactive species, or ROS, in cells and tissues, and the ability of a biological system to detoxify these reactive products. They then quote Prachi Shah. I assume that is... That's pretty close. Yeah. I don't think he's listening, so it doesn't yeah. matter. Nutritionist and founder of Health Habitat, which is apparently a tiny shack of a store in Reedsburg, Wisconsin, Shaw tells Cosmo, fruits, especially berries, cherries, kiwis, and pomegranate, are rich in antioxidants that help neutralize the free radicals in the body. Yeah, neutralize those free radicals. <laughs> um, thus help manage the symptoms of a hangover. That makes this week's Hangover Cure, Berries and Cherries. Coming up, a deep dive into the revelations found in the Uber files. We will also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what is your God against that you want to see banned for everyone else? And uh, a new episode of Sub Soapbox, when producer Sebastian Vopper steps back into and through history to provide historical context to some of today's most pressing issues. And if we have time, we'll be reading a couple of emails from our listeners that were uh, very, very enjoyable. This is not the media. This is hell. The Uber files reveal a lot about how the ride-hailing app rose to prominence and the power that made it all happen. The documents show unethical behavior and Uber's manipulation of democratic institutions and public perception, even at the expense of safety of their own drivers. Here to help us understand what's behind the curtain 
at Uber senior editor at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Dean Starkman joins us to discuss the Uber Files, a global journalism collaboration with media outlets, including the ICIJ, as well as The Guardian, The Washington Post, and Le Monde. You can follow ICIJ on Twitter at ICIJ.org. You can find out more about ICIJ as well as all of their work, including the work on the Uber Files, at ICIJ.org. And you can follow Dean on Twitter, at Dean Starkman. Welcome to This Is Hell, Dean. Good to be with you, Chuck. Hello. Thank you so much for being on our show. And I just want to thank everybody at ICIJ for appearing on our show in the past. The work that you guys do is fantastic, fantastic. But one thing I have noticed, and I don't mean this to diminish your work in any way, is that whatever we have covered here on This Is Hell, sure, it will get into the U.S. media. You'll see articles about it in, for instance, the Washington Post, a collaborator with you on this investigation. But I rarely see it as like a big discussion or big talking point on, you know, the major cable TV networks or TV news networks. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think these kind of in-depth, when when really good investigative journalism is being done, why do you think it doesn't get into the popular mainstream narrative? Well, this is a good question, Chuck. And it's one I, we actually ask ourselves all the time. Uh, here's... <laughs> Here's the theory. One of them is this. Um, you know, first we really appreciate you're appreciating us and and, uh, and reading our stuff and and uh, and talking to your listeners about it. Uh, you know, that's how the word gets out. One thing uh, that I, I can certainly point to is the fact that for sort of we're kind of the luck of the leak, I guess you would say. The bad luck of the leak is that in often times we. Um, we come across data that just doesn't have a lot of U.S. news in it, and that's you know that's just the way it goes. But the Panama Papers was a, a, a prime example. It was right it was right before I got to ICIJ in 2016. But if you remember, that's sort of our I don't know signature project, the one that's that's most entered the the public lexicon. But uh, that thing exploded all over the world. I mean, there were demonstrations and and uh, sit-ins and and and, uh, and and votes of no confidence. In Iceland and 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 in uh, Pakistan and and the Philippines and, and and Korea and Canada everywhere but the U.S. and I noticed that as well in uh, subsequent uh, subsequent leaks uh, where we often come across like FinCEN files for instance. Well, that's a longer story, but uh, uh, where we come across a lot of data about. I don't know, Russian oligarchs, for instance, and we've and the uh, Panama Papers, for instance, and uh, and Pandora Papers was was uh, was sort of chock full of revelations about Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs, as well as others from Uzbekistan and other parts of the world. And would be, you know, there have been occasions where we've come across some stories about Trump and Trump uh, cabinet officials. Dennis Ross showed up, the former Commerce Secretary showed up in the uh, in the Paradise Papers. But that's been that would be sort of that would be uh, uh, that would be sort of reason number number one. Um, uh, the other other one, I I I want to say that. Um, uh, we we um, we've done a string of stuff, as you've noted, on what's called the offshore industry, which is this archipelago of of uh, secrecy jurisdictions that that are around the world that enable all sorts of 
types of um, uh, social ills, including uh, large-scale public corruption, arms dealing, and human trafficking, and and the rest, which all none of which would be possible in the scale that they are without without this industry. And you could argue that that's sort of a, an abstract, uh, sort of a second level. Um, uh, um, uh, crime, uh, even though we try really hard to tie back to all the, the, the harm and social ills that it causes. But you know, if I had to guess, those would be, those would be two, uh, two of the, the, the main regions that come to mind. But the Paradise Papers, for instance, they talked about how there are tax havens. You know, the United States, uh, right. there was a bipartisan attack on tax havens right. around the world that are offshore. And then all of those came here to the, not all of them, but a, a very large chunk of them came here to the United States to places like South Dakota. And then, so you would think that that would lead to some domestic reporting. And here in the Uber right. files, which we'll get right. to in just a second, there are people involved in the Uber files who were Obama administration officials and now are Biden administration officials. So you would think at least Fox News would be reporting on these to attack right. the Biden-Obama administrations, but we don't see that. So why is that? Yeah, do, yeah. please don't take my previous answer for letting the U.S. Uh, media off the hook because absolutely they've, they've underreported and fallen down on the job on a lot of these things. For instance, the Paradise Papers had incredible revelations, like groundbreaking stuff about about um, small startups called Apple and Nike and Google. We, uh, we essentially uh, um, uh, basically revealed their tax avoidance strategies that, uh, that shuffle billions of dollars of uh, revenue to, to uh, low tax jurisdictions from places like, well, France, you know? And so, right, there was, the, you know, you could, you could really argue there's, there's that requ it requires some, I, I would say it requires a little investigation or soul searching, at least on the part of US media. And one thing I would also add is that, um, you know, we pick one or two maximum partners in every country. And in um, in our in the latest case, we've had amazing, uh, uh, collaboration with the Washington Post, for instance, and we've also had great experience with NBC News, and you know, and and um, you know, and, and it's sort of just sort of a fact of media life that if the Post has something, uh, the New York Times is going to be very reluctant to try and follow it, and that's uh, another sort of uh, another sort of aspect of the of the model that sometimes comes back to uh, to haunt us. So ICIJ reports that at the beginning of the report, it states that in mid-2015, taxi drivers were protesting against Uber in Marseille, France's second largest city, claiming the San Francisco-based company was breaking the law and threatening their livelihoods. French authorities responded to the protest by suspending Uber's most popular service, needing a friend in government to smooth things over. Uber's chief lobbyist sought help from a young French minister on the rise, that being the current French president, Emmanuel Macron. Hours after Uber's lobbyists contacted uh, Macron, authorities revised the suspension order. Having reported on this relationship between business and government for decades, to what extent does this kind of relationship between Macron and Uber surprise you in any way? Uh, it, I have to say, I guess I'm naive, but I was I was stunned. I was stunned mostly by the by the detail and the, the sort of degree of intimacy. 
uh, in the relationship between uh, people like McGann and and Emmanuel Macron. The, uh, the, the if to me the big takeaway for the for this investigation was the just the ease with which um, capital essentially uh, Uber and its uh, A-list lobbyists were able to gain audiences with basically anyone anyone they wanted, and often they. They were sort of in the in the driver's seat, so to speak. They had the upper hand. Uh, the, the meeting with uh, they were able to see you know, everyone from Joe Biden to the Prime Minister of Ireland and, and Italy and and senior officials in in the, they put a former senior official in the, in the Netherlands on their on their payroll. And uh, in Russia, they basically had their um, had contacts with with any uh, any uh, with a range of uh, oligarchs and investors, but it, but it's really the Western uh, piece that really I think uh, just surprises me. So if you look at some, of it, I have to say, I mean, I I, I don't want to brag on this, but I find I find our stories more <laughs> pretty readable. You know, this time They're, we're not into the weeds of um, offshore finance. This is really basic stuff. You know, text messages between McGann and Macron and for instance, that were just um, kind of startling in the way they talk, uh, you know, they talk to each other. So for instance, when when McGann said, hey, what's going on in Marseille? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, it's more or less right. You go back if, and then, uh, and Macron, the first thing he writes back is, he says, uh, the important thing is for us to stay calm. You know, it's clear like they're all, uh, basically on the same team in the depth of the, 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 the uh, the, the degree of collaboration was was you know almost uh, almost a hundred percent. So it's there was I guess that did surprise me that there was very little arm's length uh, chuck between uh, the Uber lobbyists and the uh, and the uh, global leaders. The McGann you're referring to is one of Uber's top lobbyists. ICIJ right. reports Uber executives courted oligarchs, as you were just pointing out, uh, that uh, try, that were tied to Russian President Vladimir Putin through former U.S. and U.K. officials and struck special deals with them. Those oligarchs have since been sanctioned by Western governments in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The same oligarchs the U.S. and U.K. are now punishing for Ukraine were being helped by the U.S. and U.K. when it comes to Uber. Is that in any way inconsistent? Or is that just the way of doing business in the world today, that one day oligarchs can help U.S. business interests and the next day they can be seen as national security threats or promoting inhumane policies during times of war? Yeah, I I, I don't know if, if it is the way it is, but in fact, uh, you know, it's clear that that um, a lot of U.S. businesses, from uh, Burger King and to McDonald's and every and and, the, and and many others, did did business in uh, in Russia after after the the regime was already under sanction uh, because of the invasion of Crimea. So what? But now, uh, and again, the sort of the 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 uh, the, uh, the degree to which the lengths that Uber went to. To make these contacts, the the very complex um, financial deals they made with uh, with um, a few of them through uh, offering um, uh, stock warrants and and uh, other incentives for them, with the explicit intention uh, of of gaining access to the Russia's very corrupt political system. You know that's all that's all coming to light now, but that all that all happened in. Uh, uh, 
you know, in, in the 2015, 2016, you know, in the wake of the Ukraine invasion, uh, it's it's utterly, you know, it 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 looks terrible, and and rightfully so. But it also should be mentioned that you know Russia was already a a country under sanction, already had known for um, its poisoning of uh, of political dissidents, its murder of, of journalists. You know, long long before the invasion of Ukraine, when uh, when Uber was doing business there. ICIJ and the Uber files also reveal, uh, and they quote, uh, Jill Hazelbaker, a spokeswoman for Uber, who acknowledged mistakes and miscues that culminated five years ago, and quote, one of the most infamous reckonings in the history of corporate America. So were they simple mistakes and miscues, or were they Uber's business model? They were Uber's, they were Uber's business model. And, and um, uh, it, you know, they, our, our documents reveal, in fact, that... Uh, more than one Uber executive uh, sort of repeated the mantra that the company had adopted, adopted that it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. So um, I, you know, so really the model was, all, you know, was based on a couple of things. First, essentially, basically opening up and doing business w- without without requisite licenses or or, uh, or permits or and and a and a pretty. Um, a pretty um, uh, brazen disregard for the local laws, the rule of law, and uh, that's uh, you know that's pretty um, that's pretty that's a pretty damaging thing for uh, one company to be able to get away with it, while at the same time having easy access to to the leadership of those those countries. No, the the model was based on. Uh, uh, starting be, starting up without it and essentially undercutting the market in price with, with um, without uh, without going without taking on the the obligations that uh, other taxi providers had to do and um, and it was also kind of based on this fiction that the people who drove for Ubers were were uh, independent business people and not not Uber employees, which, you know, they which which is uh, which is a kind of, a, you know, a, a key component of their of their model, which really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. ICIJ reports that the Uber files shed light on internal discussions among executives grappling with the fallout of Uber's chaotic global strategy. Mark McGann, again, who we were mentioning earlier, Uber's chief lobbyist in Europe at the time, described Uber's approach to entering new markets as a shitstorm, according to the documents. Uh, the Uber files also quote Nari Hordejan, a uh, that the then head of Uber's global communications, writing to a colleague and uh, government official to shut down the ride-hailing system in Thailand and India. We, we're just effing illegal. So if right. Uber knowingly broke laws regarding influence peddling, what is the likelihood, in your opinion, that they will be legally held accountable or is the only thing that they can be done because all of this may have been actually legal because of weak uh, lobbying laws is the only possibility to reform Uber holding them politically accountable. Right. Um, right. Well, there, um, uh, the, 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 the problem, the problem of Uber is that essentially they were, um, their model was to operate in this gray zone uh, where uh, it was, they were basically a, a case of first impression for most of these local governments. Nobody had ever seen 
uh, a company just literally come in, start up and, and start to do business. And as a result, uh, it created chaos and disruption and local authorities were, were, uh, were essentially chasing, chasing Uber. And that was sort of part of the, the model. I don't know that. Um, and, you know, and I will say that, that the, uh, that the Uber, um, argument today was that this was this was all done in the past uh, is true but all a bit too convenient because um, you know they uber would not be uber today without these without having done these tactics and it's a bit now that they've achieved a, you know a, a measure of of global domin dominance in the, in this market. Now it's easy to say, well, we made mistakes along the way, or that was that was the that was that old bad regime that uh, that we that we took over for and and uh, and had this reckoning. But the fact is, they're sitting atop a uh, a you know they've already gained control of of or or gained secured pretty uh, pretty strong positions in, in global markets as a result of those tactics. Long story short, uh, Chuck, I you know it, it, it's it's difficult to um, it's difficult to um, to to say like how this company will be held accountable. But having said that, um, when you kind of base your model on a, kind of this economic fiction that these um, that these these drivers are uh, that these drivers are not your employees, and that you're able to uh, to uh, operate this uh, this uh, platform without taking on all of the obligations of uh, of of employment, essentially uh, in health insurance and retirement and other and other sort of benefits. Um, the the question then becomes, though, um, is this ultimately going to be a will that will those sort of half truths kind of catch up with you? And you can sort of arguing that it is. They have been found. Courts have ruled against them in, in some jurisdictions, including the UK. And now they're sort of they're sort of uh, stuck in a in a place where they're trying to um, uh, you know they 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 they're, they've been trying for since they since they went public they've been trying to achieve uh, a profitability and and really have had. A hard time after sustaining, you know, enormous losses. So the question becomes whether or not that a, a model based on on a very dubious premise is really going to work out in the end, and maybe the the market will catch catch up with them. And uh, later this week, we're actually going to be talking about how the law has actually uh, reinforced the beliefs that uh, Uber employees are not their actual employees when we speak with jo uh, Joseph Fishkin and William E. Forbath, a couple of uh, law scholars who uh, have an article out at uh, Boston Review called Make Progressive Politics Constitutional Again. Is this just a matter of, because we've had guests point this out before in the past, mm -hmm. of the law and governance not being able to keep up with technology, that there's always a lag time between new technologies and regulations? No, I don't buy that. I, I, I hear I hear why why people I understand why people might think that, but I kind of don't buy it. I, you you um you know to operate you're operating a taxi company. You need a license. You know, full stop. And uh, you know the you, know, you don't need a. It has nothing to do with. It, it, I think if you you believe that just because your your dispatcher is an is a is an application and not a, a guy with a microphone. Then that somehow you're not a, a taxi for service and not not subject to regulation. So no, I, I don't buy it. I also 
see, feel like the, um, uh, the, the, the fact that government, you know, found itself in a, you know, slow to, to act in terms of, uh, enforcement, in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, uh, uh adjusting its laws to, to match Uber, I, you know, that's, to me, that's basically a function of the, uh, the, the first point that we made, the ease with which Uber was able to gain access and sympathetic ears in, in Western governments. For instance, uh, Chuck, it's worth remembering, and I, 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 it's almost worth another article, but it's, it, it is interesting and notable that, um, that Uber's biggest successes were in, in, um, in liberal democracies, the Western, Western Europe in particular, and in particular, as we saw, France and, uh, and the Netherlands and places like that. Whereas today, uh, uh, where I am in Hungary, there's, Uber doesn't exist, and it doesn't exist in, in Russia either. Now, you could argue that, um, you, so you could say, well, <laughs> you could argue that, that in, in, in the, the, the reason why they aren't in those markets is, is complicated, and I'm not necessarily indic indicative of, uh, of clean government, that's for sure. But the, the fact is, you, you, you know, you know uh, Hungary and, and Russia were able to uh, places like these kind of populist or autocratic uh, uh, regimes were able to keep up, so to speak, with with Uber and and um, and, and protect their markets, whereas uh, the Western governments weren't. So I don't I don't think it's a function of, of governments being slow footed. I think it's it's a function of uh, Uber's access to to government officials and their ability to to influence policy. ICIJ and the Uber Files cite the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte, advising Uber's founder and CIO, CEO, sorry, Travis Kalanick, in 2016, according to meeting notes, quote, right now you are seen as aggressive. Change the way people look at the company by stressing the positives. This will make you seem cuddly. ICIJ adds that Uber's aggressiveness, plunging into markets without government approvals, made Uber's drivers the target of traditional cabbies' rage. Taxi drivers saw their business threatened by competitors who didn't have to play by the same rules. In Europe, Asia, and South America, cabbies staged protests, harassed Uber customers, beat Uber drivers, and set fire to their cars. Some Uber executives sought to spin violence to their own advantage. They discussed mm -hmm. leaking details of a near-fatal stabbing and other brutal attacks to the media, hoping to draw negative attention to the taxi industry, the communications show. So did Uber profit from violence against their own drivers? Did they intentionally sacrifice the safety of their own drivers to improve their image? Because you'd think that would not be a sustainable model when recruiting drivers. Right. Well, what we certainly showed was that they were certainly not shy about uh, discussing the possibility of exploiting you know, violence against their drivers for for public relations purposes. And uh, you kind of see uh, there's a, a callousness in the um, in the in the discourse that uh, you know that many people found found notable. Um, the the fact is that this, um, you know, it, it never had to be this way. You, you, um, it's not as though there shouldn't be ride hailing. You know, it doesn't. It's this was never. It's never been a question of uh, Uber not no Uber ride hailing no no ride ride hailing that the taxi industry was not uh, was was uh, was perfect before and not and didn't and and wasn't ripe for for, for reform. It's all about 
basically adhering to process and 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 if uh and, and allowing uh you know allowing a ride hailing uh platform to come into a market but but you know with with protect with 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 the requirements that that other taxi service providers had to had to uh had to adhere to and not artificially crashing the market by you know by 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 uh, uh by abdicating responsibility for worker protections, so all none of this was none of this was was necessary. And and yes, uh, the violence was uh, a predictable, you could say certainly natural, not not defensible, but very understandable response to this kind of shock shock therapy, this sort of disruption that Uber that Uber's model um, uh, used to 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 crash into into to new to new markets. We are speaking with Dean Starkman, senior senior editor at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which uh, was involved in the the Uber Files, a global journalism collaboration with media outlets, including the ICIJ, as well as The Guardian, Washington Post, and Le Monde, among others. You can follow ICIJ on Twitter at ICIJ, and you can find out everything about Uber Files by going to ICIJ.org. And you can follow Dean on Twitter at Dean Starkman. So uh, according to records uh, revealed through the Uber files, they show that Uber executives met with Francis Macron, then Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, then Irish Prime Minister Enda Kenny, and then Estonia President Tumas uh, Hendrick, uh, lot, uh, uh, amongst many other world le- leaders, including uh, you know Joe, Vice Pre- then Vice President Joe Biden. To you, what explains why Uber had such access to power around the world? Is it simply money or is it more than that? Because I hate when it's just money. Well, I mean, money talks. And uh, to me, again, as I was saying earlier, this kind of shows that the advantage that 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 capital has in in uh, in getting in gaining access to the political leaders, not necessarily buying policy, but access is really important. It's sort of like you're, once you've got an audience with uh, with these leaders, you're uh, you're more than halfway home. And and uh, uh, the you know being uh, representative of you know being of American multinational, extremely well funded one with you know almost not unlimited, but uh, a lavishly funded venture capital. Uh, budget yeah you know it made a you know it, it it definitely got clearly got world leaders attention having said that there's also there's also some ideological sympathy to to uh to the idea of of uh, of a uh of disrupting uh labor markets and and uh, and there's uh some of these politicians were at odds with with uh with the unions in their in their countries, and and Macron in particular had had, had made it sort of a priority to, uh, um, in his view, sort of unstick uh, the labor market in in France and def- in, in among several industries. So that also that also explains the uh, their sort of uh, ability to influence a policy. And and finally, you, you know, you don't. It's it's not a it's not a coincidence that the some of the top people they hired were. Former senior uh, political advisors and very well-known people from the Obama administration, David Plouffe and Jim Messina, were uh, sort of pretty much celebrities in 
in uh, you know center center left uh, circles, and uh, were globally known. And uh, their name opened doors, and that's why that's why you have to say Uber hired them. So their success is based on an ideological uh, stance towards being anti-worker, in a sense. So ICIJ also reports that leaked internal documents reveal that from 2014 to 2016, Uber executives held more than 100 meetings with public officials from 17 countries, as well as representatives of the European Union institutions. They included 12 meetings with representatives of the European Commission that haven't been publicly disclosed. How undemocratic was the process by which Uber expanded globally? Did it always avoid what would otherwise be considered democratic norms in order to be successful? Yeah, I mean, I think that was that's an important reveal, and I'm glad you you you're pointing to it because um, it's you, 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 one wonders whether or not the taxi unions or other unions or or workers' voices had what kind of access they had to the same leadership, and and you know I think the question almost answers itself. The, I mean, the fact that they were undisclosed is a is a clear finding on our part that should um, should spark in investigations in the places where those are those occurred. But but more to the point. You know, in general, I think people um, are discouraged, put it mildly, about democracy because they're not sure it's it's fair. Not sure that it, everybody plays by the same set of rules, and not sure everybody's voice is, is able to be heard, and and it's they're not sure that um, that the system you know isn't uh, tilted in favor of people with uh, with uh, money and um, and and uh, and uh, and 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 access. So. Uh, this, you know, the to me, I feel like that's maybe the most um, important finding is that uh, that this uh, kind of so you show how that you know, you're 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 looking at a sort of a lobbying and influence system that that clearly favors one side of the equation over the other, and uh, that's I think where um, where if you're uh, if you're uh, looking at uh, trying to to fix um, to fix uh, the democratic process, that's that's one place to start. ICIJ and the Uber files also reveal Uber, like other businesses operating outside the U.S., use technology protocols to protect intellectual property and the privacy of riders and drivers, and to ensure due process of law is respected to the event of a raid. Uber spokeswoman Devon Spurgeon said, adding, quote, these fail-safe protocols do not delete any data or information and all decisions about their uh, use involved were vetted by and were approved by Uber's legal and regulatory departments. Our intellectual property rights, in the case of Uber, an obstacle to Uber being held legally responsible for uh, by lo- local law enforcement. Do intellectual property Oop. rights protect Uber from being held uh, legally or even politically accountable? No, absolutely not. I mean, that was Travis Kalanick's uh, spokesperson, um, uh, Spurgeon, but uh, that was sort of their post facto, uh, ex post facto explanation for the the findings we had on what was known as the kill switch. The kill switch was a protocol um, by which um, uh, staffers in local Uber offices like Amsterdam or Paris or Budapest 
would, in the event of a police raid or a raid by uh, local regulators, would would shut off uh, access to um, to Uber data uh, to prevent uh, law enforcement authorities from executing their subpoenas. And that has nothing to do with intellectual property. You know, that's just basic rule of law stuff right there. You, you know, everyone has to comply with, with a lawful subpoena and uh, that does, there's no, there's no question about, about uh, protecting um, Uber's intellectual property there. That was, that was, it was going to be in, in official hands. It wasn't going to be published anywhere. They weren't going to go out, out there tweeting it. This was, you know, a pretty, a naked attempt to thwart um, legitimate law enforcement investigations, and uh, I, yeah, I don't think intellectual property has has anything to do with it. Of course, of course, you protect um, your intellectual property from hacks or or so an ex employee, for instance, who wants to you know steal your stuff or whatever the whatever the uh, whatever the legitimate use of a kill switch might be. But this was not that's that's not what we're talking about in this case. And you even point out that there's a playbook uh, that they actually followed. And you mentioned that there's an exchange of uh, between a couple of people, a text exchange, where they even talk about having a signed copy of the playbook. And that, that just reveals a lot of arrogance and hubris. ICIJ and Uber files uh, also reports to surmount obstacles. Uber built a massive influence juggernaut, as we've been talking about, for lobbying and related activities with a proposed global budget of $90 million in 2016, mm-hmm. according to the leaked documents. The company borrowed strategies it had honed in the United States. So is the power of corporate lobbying in the U.S not only a problem in the United States, and does U.S.-style corporate lobbying undermine democracy uh, globally by putting, as the phrase goes, profits over people? Is the U.S.-style of democracy a threat to democracy worldwide? Well, yeah, it is. And, and, and the trouble is, it's, it, it's um, that, that $90 million figure is, again, another pretty good finding. And, but it, when you're spending that much money, um, on on political influence and, and and gaining government concessions, it really speaks to the fact that this was not really um, that the, for all of the uh, for all of the uh, talk about this being this Uber as being this sort of advanced technology company with the seamless seamless ride experience, it really came down to sort of brute political influence in 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 gaining access to. Uh, basically having the rules changed in local markets around the world. And yeah, it, it's uh, American style lobbying is, um, is, is, uh, is a, a problem because um, it, because it often faces such weak resistance from uh, the public invi- officials in charge of are protecting the public interest, balancing balance, balancing interests between, you know, a new startup who might want to enter market and uh, workers who already have spent their life savings and and mortgage their house on a uh, on a on a taxi medallion, for instance. And um, you know this this um, this this sort of um, uh, the this this sort of markets are supposed to be about. Uh, uh, about balancing of interests of of of, 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 of where you where the uh, where government is supposed to uh, supposed to be able to sort through um, you know the ultimately the most beneficial for the 
public policy for 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 society and and um, in our in what we see here in this case and unfortunately too many others is that in the in the end um, it's the people with money who get to kind of who who win these these so-called policy disputes and uh, and um, and uh, ordinary working people are uh, are uh, are sort of left in the lurch. ICIJ reports the company turned to uh, Uber, that is, to strategic investors, people with deep pockets and political connections to influence laws abroad. Company executives encouraged them to invest in the ride-hailing app and ensured that they had enough skin in the game to help the uh, company overcome regulatory obstacles in their respective countries. So was the Uber plan to have enough capital from investors so fines would have a negligible impact on their bottom line, that they could afford a punishment and continue to be profitable? that capital would essentially keep Uber above the law is is the problem that sure there might be some enforcement there might be some regulation there might be might be some punishment but it just doesn't fit the unethical or immoral act I don't uh, want right. to use the word crime at this point I understand yeah punishment doesn't fit the crime but right the the um, yeah I mean but in in effect though uh, Chuck uh, the authorities kind of did actually have the power I mean they're they their fines were, uh, they had fines available, but they also could simply um, uh, deny a license for for um, for, uh, for um, a company that that was operating in their jurisdiction without without one, and, and they required it. They could have, um, and in some cases, tried to in Marseille, for instance, to um, arrest and find individual Uber drivers. Um, in um, in uh, in Paris and Amsterdam, they were um, they were they actually raided the uh, raided the uh, uh, main offices of, of Uber in those countries, and which actually pr- prompted prompted um, executives there to 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 operate the kill switch to prevent their their uh, gaining access to to records. But you know, they you know they uh, they um, uh, the, the governments, you know, they do have authority over their jurisdictions. That that's it's not as though they were they were overwhelmed with um, with uh, uh, Uber sort of just paying fines and, and going about their business. Uh, you know, the the Macron Marseille uh, uh, example is kind of was I thought an interesting anecdote where. Here's a local official who is uh, attempting to to curtail or shut down and, and at least assess where where Uber uh, what to do about Uber in, in that particular city and and um, all of a sudden text text messages and phone calls are flying and the next thing you know the uh, um, the uh, the regulation is revised. So uh, bottom line is the you know uh, political the political authorities have. Have the uh, have the have the have the authority. They have the jurisdiction. The question is, you know, are they going to use it? And if not, why not? 
ICIJ reports that the leaked Uber files documents throw light on Uber's chief European lobbyist, McGann, and a former Obama official turned Uber lobbyist Messina's ties to Jane Hartley, the U.S. ambassador to France from 2014 mm-hmm. to 2017. Uh, Hartley got her prestigious diplomatic post after raising large amounts of money for the Obama, Obama campaign. And they also point out, the Uber files also point out that David Plouffe uh, held unpublicized meetings with several U.S. officials, including then U.S. Labor Secretary Tom Perez and Ambassador Hartley. A State Department spokesman said Hartley, now U.S. Ambassador to the United Kingdom under President Biden, did not recall any discussions with Plouffe from Messina about Uber. Uh, Perez did not respond to repeated requests for uh, comments. So in your opinion, why isn't there more scrutiny, both politically during appointment hearings and by the media, when it comes to appointing ambassadors if they seem to have so much political and economic and business uh, sway when it comes to relations with other countries, as Hartley did with France, and then now Hartley will likely have with the UK. Right. Um, yeah, it's, you know, that was one of the most, uh, sort of the uh, most sort of uh, spect- spectacular or sensational uh, findings, not, not sensational in a sense, but it's one of the juiciest, I guess, is the one I was thinking, the word I guess thinking of is when McGann and, well, I can't remember, uh, Messina, I think it was, I hope I think I'm right, are texting about Hartley and and what should I, you know, one says the other, what should I tell her when I see her? And the other guy says, oh, I tell her I love her. And she said, uh, you know, they're joking. And they said, yeah, well, she did, She says, you don't love her enough. And then uh, Messina says, well, we did give her France. And then they go on and talk about uh, the furnishings of this grand, 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 uh, um, uh, uh, embassy and ambassador's residence in Paris and, and the de Koonings and the, uh, and the other artworks that, 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 that she's, that, that, that they have there. And I don't know, it's, it's, it just, to me, it just shows that, um, uh, you know, there, that, you know, these relationships are expected to be arm's length and that you are, uh, that Uber is yet one of other uh, constituencies who are seeking your ear if you're a, if you're a, a regulator, if you're a labor secretary, or if you're a, you're an ambassador to to France or the United Kingdom, and uh, but it it you know the the kind of the uh, the culture cultural norms have have shifted to the extent and the and the uh, oversight is is weakened to the point where essentially you have this um, this just very um, I guess the word is cozy or intimate or. Or, uh, or friendly uh, kind of almost collaboration between uh, between um, the private sector and government, private sector filled with recently departed former government officials, you know, this kind of revolving door kind of phenomenon. So, you know, we, we you know, uh, you know, it, you know, democracy is hard. It requires, it requires, um, you know, people to to kind of keep a distance, to to mind uh, mind your uh, your 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 duty to to the public interest as well as the as the person right right in front of you at a cocktail party. And and uh, clearly um, clearly the 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 both the cultural norms we have in place now and the and the regulatory oversight um, surrounding these contacts is is not adequate. 
just to get back where we started with Macron, ICIJ reports in July of 2015, uh, the founder and former CEO, Travis Kalanick of Uber, asked Macron whether Interior Minister Bernard uh, Cazeneuve uh, could be trusted. Macron replied that he had met with him and then Prime Minister Manuel Vallis the previous day and that Cazeneuve had accepted a, uh, a deal. Uh, Macron said he would amend the law and later that evening the company suspended Uber Pop in France, uh, one of their more popular uh, apps. Cazeneuve told Le Mans that he had never heard of the deal between the French government and Uber. Macron, he said, didn't tell him anything about that. So from what the Uber file reveal, was Macron working in contradiction with not only the desires of the French government, but its consumer protection agency from over which he was supposed to be the oversight? Right. Well, he, um, you know, it, it, he'll say and uh, others say that you know, there were no deal struck and that no agreements were reached. And, and this was normal sort of, I uh, was just being responsive to to a constituent whose model, by the way, I supported. That would be Macron's. Uh, that would be Macron's story. Um, you know, but uh, you know, we we only have what we have there. We, you know, they they um, we we have these these uh, very conversational text messages between Mark McGann and uh, Uber's lobbyist and the uh, French economy minister. I mean, how many people? Uh, how many times have you, uh, Chuck, have you texted the, uh, the Commerce Secretary of the United States? You know, it just doesn't, uh, you know, everybody doesn't have that kind of, not everybody has Emmanuel Macron's cell phone number, let's put it that way. So, you know, once once they've achieved that level of, of, of connection, of, 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 uh, of access, um, you know, then it opens up its, to, you know, all sorts of possibilities become become uh, become clear and and uh, whether or not uh, it, this deal was a deal or wasn't a deal um, the fact is it was there was the, 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 the you know it was not done in a way that was uh, transparent and visible and open for uh, for all parties to 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 um, to to participate to object and to uh, and to you know have a say and so um, you know that's sort of the that's sort of the problem with the, uh, the the whole way that Uber did did, beer, did business in France and, and elsewhere. Dean, just a couple more questions for you. ICIJ and the Uber files reveal rulings have gone against drivers seeking employee status in the United States. The National Labor Relations Board re- declared that Uber drivers are independent contractors, as you were saying earlier, who do not have the right, right to form unions or bargain collectively. After racking up more than $20 billion in losses over more than 10 years, Uber finally began drawing closer to profitability in 2022. So to you, first of all, what explains why investors have been willing to stay on through all those losses? And secondly, can Uber only be profitable by not allowing workers to unionize or bargain collectively? Can Uber both be profitable and have labor rights? Uh, I, I think if they were required to, to, uh, to acknowledge that the drivers are employees and to uh, that their 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 shares would uh, and 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 take on the uh, obligations of an employer. I think their their shares would tank. That's just uh, a guess. I, you know their their model is really is premised on this idea that their that their um, that their um, uh, drivers are are not are not employees. And the trouble is though, 
Chuck, is that they, 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 at the same time, the problem is they have to maintain a high degree of control over what they call the supply. The supply is what they mean, how they refer to drivers. And they do that through, um, through this sort of informational asymmetry to use a uh, economist terms. Basically they have all the data and their drivers have none of it. And so they are able to, um, there's actually some really good academic research on, on, uh, on this and I can I'd be happy to send you some links that you can post uh, in the notes, but there was a, uh, there's a, uh, there's this, um, uh, there's this uh, algorithm of uh, that, that helps uh, them basically make sure that they have enough supply to keep customers happy and, and uh, in, at the same time, not, um, not, uh, not have their workers, uh, you know, have their workers be, have their drivers be, be treated as employees. So um, yeah, they're actually in a kind of a tight place. You know, they are lucky enough to be based in the United States where uh, places like the NLRB will make rulings like that, which uh, you could really, I, I hope your, your guests coming up in a couple of, you know, later uh, would be able to break that down because I'd be very curious to hear how they, how they managed to, to do that. But you know, for for um, you know, for the but for the purpose for our purposes here, I mean, there's no there's no doubt that um, were uh, Uber required to to take on the responsibilities of frankly other taxi companies, um, they would they would really they would I, I I don't think that they would make it. I, I don't think I think that they would agree. Yeah, please send those links, and I'll send you uh, a link to their writing as well, which is the article at Boston Review is part of their uh, new book, so I'll send you a link to that as well. One uh, other thing I just want to make sure that listeners right. know is that the Uber files also reveal Uber executives also sought to deflect inquiries about the company's aggressive tax avoidance strategies by volunteering to help host countries collect income taxes owed by drivers documents show so has there been not just not just from the drivers and the protests that we've seen in the last decade has there been any fallout or blowback against uber from the uber files uh yeah no well i mean the response to this you sort of mentioned earlier about uh you know we sort of where's the uh, where's the outrage um for uh, following the Pandora Papers and the rest. Uh, in this case, um, we've been really, uh, I guess, gratified to see the amount of attention that the Uber files have generated. Uh, you know, if, you, if, if somebody asked me why, I, I wouldn't exactly be able to answer. I, I you know, I, I do happen to think this is one of our, our more readable, uh, more sensational, uh, just from a reader standpoint, that's my kind of job is I'm the word guy. So I think this was, a, this had a lot of great material. The, the texts are fun, they're interesting. It's got a lot of people's attention. It's pretty easy to understand when people are sort of texting the economy minister of France, who's now, now the president of the country. You know, and all of that is, all of this has been, so it's generated um, quite a bit of attention in, uh, in uh, Europe, where where I am, um, particularly in France, where Macron has really um, been raked over the coals by the opposition, by the taxi industry, and by by others, it, it, it uh, the uh, the Netherlands is is also seems to be quite active in their government in pursuing um, investigations into a uh, former 
a transportation minister and European commissioner turned Uber lobbyist, Nellie, Nellie Crows. There's uh, a lot of activity um, going on really across across Europe in regards to this. And uh, and again, it seems to have generated uh, quite a bit of, a, of attention in the US where we sort of, uh, you know, where maybe, maybe, maybe people would begin to reassess um, you know the uh, uh, the you know the the cost the true cost of a low of a low taxi fare. Yeah, that's what my last question for you is. Uh, we've been speaking with senior editor at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, Dean Starkman, who joined us today to discuss the Uber Files, a global journalism collaboration with media outlets, including the ICIJ, as well as The Guardian, The Washington Post, and Le Monde. You can find out everything about the Uber Files at ICIJ.org. You can follow the ICIJ on Twitter at ICIJ.org, and you can follow Dean on Twitter at Dean Starkman. Dean, I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question you may hate to ask, right. <laughs> uh, we may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. I refuse yeah. to use Uber, and I have never done so. I also live one block away from where I work, so it might not be fair. When I've discussed this with other people that I don't use Uber, uh, when I've talked to other people who do use Uber, they've said that they know everything that is wrong with Uber, but use it anyway because it is convenient and they still prefer it over traditional cabs, despite the fact that this neighborhood is a neighborhood that has got a lot of cab drivers who live in it. Do you believe yep. or is there any evidence that there is a consumer revolt against Uber now that the Uber files have revealed how anti-democratic, anti-worker uh, Uber really is? Will this, in your opinion, have an impact on ridership, which seems to be the only thing that Uber would be interested in? And if not, in your opinion, why not? That is the question from hell, but I'm happy to answer it because <laughs> I feel like it's it's a um, it's um, I feel like in, in, with respect, I feel like it's the wrong question, but it, it, it's a good question, but the wrong one. So, for instance, um, uh, I hate Facebook. Right. And I know that Facebook does all sorts of things that um, that uh, are really harmful to society, to to kids, to democracy, to, uh, I don't know, public health. Right. But I'm on Facebook. Right. Because it has achieved it. You know, it's a platform that has achieved through um, through. Uh, this sort of the benefits of, of this network dynamic to be achieved critical mass. And now it's sort of become this very difficult and indispensable thing that uh, very difficult to do without. I'm not crazy about Google too, but I use Google all the time. I'm, I'm not in, uh, you know, I, we, you know, I, I, um, I was in the U S not too long ago and, and uh, had to download the Uber app and used it, you know, and without, but I, without apology, you know, it's because uh, what these, what these companies, the, the reason it's, the reason uh, Chuck, the question is a wrong one is it, it's not, it shouldn't be, it can't be up to, it can't be up to Facebook users. It can't be up to uh, Uber riders because what, what these models are allowed to do, what these platforms are allowed to do is essentially externalize the cost, right? Externalize the costs of doing business onto society elsewhere. So, um, in Facebook's case, it externalizes the, uh, you know, it, it externalizes the cost of um, uh, of 
of misinformation and violence and, and engagement. And, and we all sort of have to suffer through that. In Uber's case, it externalizes the costs under the drivers, essentially, of, of, of providing their own health insurance, insuring their car, of, of, of arranging their own retirement. So basically, they are allowed to you know, essentially crash the market, uh, offer lower prices by externalizing the true cost of a ride. And so it's really, in the end, not up to um, it's not up to Uber riders. It's up to it's up to voters. You know, it's up to voters to and you know people who ride Uber and people who don't to to make sure that that um, that uh, uh, that the uh, companies that offer services are are required to 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 bear the true cost cost and that the price that we are charged. Unfortunately, it's, it would go up, right? But that's the true cost of a of a of an Uber ride, and that's sort of a, that's where that's where your um, in the end it always comes down to to a policy choice and a political decision, and that's how um, that's how I would say your listeners can uh, respond. It's the usual. Um, it, it you know you you um, you know you 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 shouldn't. Sure, I mean, I, I, I try to avoid, avoid using Amazon, but once I need it, when I do, I need, you know, I use it. And, uh, you know, sure, if you, you know, if your readers feel like uh, this is not a, a good actor and, um, and uh, they don't, uh, they, that they don't treat markets fairly and their, their drivers fairly, then, then, then maybe they can find a, another ride hailing service. But in the end, uh, it's about how, how, um, how these entities are are regulated and until they are um, uh, they're just going to keep uh, keep doing what they're doing it's another example of what guests have pointed out as you just pointed out uh, on our show but guests have pointed out in the past that consumer activism is not the solution structural reform in addressing policies that's the real solution dean and that's that's the ticket yeah. yep Dean, thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks to everybody at ICIJ for appearing on our show in the past. I really appreciate it, and keep up the fantastic, fantastic work at ICIJ. Chuck, we appreciate you, and thanks for having me on. All right, take care. Your your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. If what you just heard from ICIJ's Dean Starkman on the Uber files, if that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is how where you can subscribe to our patreon podcast you can also show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support on last week's patreon podcast i argued that nothing means anything anymore that everything has lost its original meaning under late stage capitalism also known as neoliberalism all meaning has been lost whether it's the loathsome word karen with all its sexist connotations you know, white middle-class dudes have been more demanding of privilege than white middle-class women since the birth of the United States, and there never was a word for them other than just being dicks. Or when it comes to snowflake, which was an abolitionist term calling out white privilege and su- supremacy, or the horrible misuse of anarchist in the HBO documentary s- series, The Anarchist, which is actually about libertarians. In fact, the episode I saw some of last night was talking about how anarchists were so into 
making money off of cryptocurrency, which is a Ponzi scheme. And I hate to tell you this, but anarchism isn't a Ponzi scheme. Or the January 6th insurrectionists inaccurately co-opting Red Wedding, Red Wedding from Game of Thrones. Or the complete misidentification of the uh, Biden administration is far left or socialist by the right wing or the far right's assault on U.S. history in order to erase the brutal genocidal past of the United States or even the way that me and my girlie have to actually work during what is supposed to be our upcoming vacation. Everything seems to have lost its meaning. It's Nothing means anything anymore. We also shared our July 26, 2003 interview with the late great filmmaker Bill Siegel. Bill joined us in studio at WNUR to discuss his Oscar-nominated documentary, The Weather Underground, which was about to have its opening here in Chicago. The documentary was about the 1970s militant revolutionary organization and featured then present day interviews with members of the Weather Underground, including past This Is Hell guest William Ayers. You can hear that interview from 2008 with William Ayers also at Patreon. You can just search on Ayers, A-Y-E-R-S, and find that interview with William when I referred to Bill as a former member, former member of the Weather Underground and Bill adamantly denied that he was a former member, stating that he had never left the group or denounced it in any way. But you can only hear all of that as well as getting a exclusive access to a secret code word that gets you a discount on all of our This Is Hell merchandise by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live Thursdays and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. It's now time for another installment of Seb Soapbox, our newest segment where producer Sebastian Vupper, a historian himself, gives his take on history. Take it away, Sebastian. Seb's Soapbox. You will likely have heard the old bromide that actually the United States is not a democracy. No, it is in fact a republic. Uh, and as a republic, it does not bend to the will of the baying masses. And, uh, well, at least that last part is true to a large degree. The system of government that the United States is ruled by has itself a slew of fail-saves that make sure minoritarian rule is virtually always guaranteed. And uh, the arguably, arguably most important and most powerful parts uh, that work in, in, in of the government that work towards this are all over the three branches, the Supreme Court, the Senate, and the Electoral College. Nowhere in the world do courts wield as much power as the Supreme Court does in the United States. Thus writes celebrated historian Gordon S. Wood of Goodwill Hunting fame, in his work on the Old Republic Empire of Liberty. The Supreme Court, supposedly one of the three co-equal branches of American government, is today anything but. Between the executive, the president, uh, the legislative congress, and the judicative, the Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, so the current Supreme Court, is more than just a check on the other branches of government. Since the Supreme Court has been completely captured by, well, I call them crystal-fascist right-wing theocrats, uh, you may disagree, but, well, that's just your opinion, man. It's basically going to wreak havoc on American politics, likely for as long as anyone listening to this will be alive. But where does this whole concept even come from? So the Supreme Court is not elected, but appointed. Equality it shared 
shared as in past tense with the Senate until the early 1900s. The wise, infallible, slaveholding founding fathers designed it in this way. Those benign, long-dead dudes who, over most other things, feared the mob. No, they did not fear Don Corleone, they feared the masses. The Constitution waxes poetically about the people and all men being created equal and all those high-minded things, but that's just a facade. Under the surface, the founding documents and ideas that this year nation was built upon are, in fact, shockingly undemocratic once you look deeper at them. You know, in the sense that only people who initially... The only people who initially had the right to vote in elections were white, landed, and male. White because, duh, landed because the vote should uh, go only to those who have a measurable stake in the country. And male because, well, women could not hold land, so they could not have a measurable stake in the country. Whoops. Uh, the founders wanted a government that was working best for people exactly like them, not for everybody, even though they proclaimed that, or they might seem to have proclaimed that. That's kind of up for debate. They threw the middling folk, uh, so what you would today call middle class, a bone with the House of Representatives. And then they made sure that this body wouldn't get too much say in things. Also, the notion of everybody as in a government for everybody, was different back then. The founders were different from British nobles insofar as that they lacked inheritable titles and lineages. But they sure all were rich, owned land, owned slaves, etc. Some historians make the claim that the founders were, at the time, the richest men in America. And there is probably something to that. Um, and that's who they wanted inalienable rights for. The masses? They were terrified of the masses. The Senate was put up to be a check on democracy. And that's not something I'm making up. That's in the sources. They said so themselves. If the masses, through votes or other persuasions, managed to flip things in the House of Popular Representatives one way, the Senate was there to smack things down. And for that end, Senators were, until 1913 and the ratification of the 17th Amendment, appointed by state legislators. Legislatures, not elected. State legislatures, for the longest time, would be elected, but also be made up of moneyed men. Also, it is no accident that every state, regardless of population, has two senators, while there are a lot more popular representatives, um, like, in, in the way that Wyoming has two senators, and as does California. Um, and now, the Supreme Court. It's not elected at all, and worse, unlike either Chamber of Congress or the Presidency, Supreme Court justices, like most federal justices, our lifetime appointments. And this, too, is rooted in just how much the Founding Fathers mistrust the democratic outcomes. But the real issue with the Supreme Court is the principle of judicial review, that in the way it's practiced today means that these unelected lifetime appointments have the ultimate say in what is and what is not constitutional federal law. And the interesting part is that this power was, in theory, only established in the 1802 Marbury v. Madison case, 
But the Chief Justice at the time seems to, and historians agree largely, not even have intended this outcome. As Sean Valence, historian, points out, uh, and apologies for citing this guy, he's kind of a dick, uh, Chief Justice Marshall never used the power of the court to probe the constitutionality of federal legislation in his remaining lifetime. And even after his death, the court would not practice judicial review until the Dred Scott decision, which should give really anybody all the pause in the world. And if you need to, if you don't know what the Dred Scott decision is, just just look it up. Um, and don't have time to go into that today, uh, because today we have a SCOTUS that in that's in competition for awfulness with the court of Roger Taney, the chief justice who oversaw the Dred Scott case, and especially because of the nonsensical notion of originalism uh, by a bunch of robed uh, ding-dongs who demonstrate no better understanding of history than most undergraduate freshmen. And this requires some elaboration. So we have today a court of supposed originalists who probe federal legislation if it's in accordance with what the court members today think the people who wrote the Constitution and made the founding principles of the nation wanted. And if it wasn't a problem in the 18th and early 19th century, then it's not something that can be regulated today, apparently, which kind of becomes a problem when the underlying principle itself, the principle that the court can decide these things in the first place, was as demonstrated by the guy who supposedly invented it, not the intention. Am, am I taking crazy pills here? And making matters worse, the Dred Scott decision, which sort of started this whole judicial supremacy thing and should give everybody a good idea of how well we should think of the Supreme Court in general, was uh, quite something. The federal legislation part of... Uh, the federal legislation part of, of all of this says that Congress had no power to limit slavery because that would bestow rights of, uh, of citizenship upon black people. And black people, by definition, could not be citizens. Good night, end of story. And that's the legacy of the court. And that's ultimately where we can find the principle of judicial review becoming a principle that is actually practiced. But ultimately, what does judicial review mean in terms of, well, democracy? It means that a group of unelected officials have the absolute power to decide whether or not the elected officials decided in uh, arbitrary ways that the people on the courts at the time agree with. So due to the court being essentially unquestionable, this doesn't even go to a point of whether or not uh, whether or not things are or are not constitutional. The justices can simply make an argument that in their opinion a law is or isn't constitutional, and that's that. Nobody can question that. So where am I going here? Is the United States a democracy or is it a republic? To quote Dora the Explorer, ¿Por qué no los dos? The United States is a democratic republic, but the system this country operates under does retain a whole slew of aspects that are blatantly and by design undemocratic because the founders were scared shirtless about the mob. This fear, historically, has been fueled by a couple of popular uprisings that started as early as in 1676 when Bacon's Rebellion rose up against Virginia elites, and as late as 1787 in Shays' Rebellion when locals in western Massachusetts rose up in resistance to tax collectors. But the founders, and more importantly, the framers of the held constitution, had their own best interests in mind when they created the foundations of the country. The people who wrote the constitution committed essentially a 
coup in principle because they lacked the authority to create a new constitution when they did so. They had come together to improve the Articles of Confederation. And since they were all wealthy landowners, and half of them owned other people in, in slavery, these guys who we are looking up to today embedded the means to secure their own benefits into the foundational laws of the land. And we are supposed to respect that as if it was divinely ordained. The framers' notes on the Constitution were decreed to be embargoed until after their deaths, which seems not like they had anything to hide at all. As political commentator Jared Yates Sexton of He Just Tweeted It Out fame puts it in American Rule, the only prevailing ideology among the framers was a fear of the American common people, a belief in the superiority of the wealthy white elite, and a need for a government to prevent the people from carrying out further revolution. There were not to be any excesses of democracy, as James Madison himself put it, and the system would function in such a way that the majority of the country would never threaten the minority, uh, the minority in this case being the white landed elites. The entire federal government is shot through with these safeguards against the mob, against the people. So yes, the United States is a democracy, albeit one that at many, many levels is rigged against democratic outcomes. And uh, that's it for the soapbox today. And when will you have an extended version posted? Uh, Thursday. I'll try Thursday this week. Like three, four, something like that? Four or five. Four or five, and that yeah. will be people can find it at YouTube at, at YouTube uh, at youtube.com slash this is hell radio 1996. And Sebastian, remind us what is this week's question from Hell and uh, share just a few of the answers from <laughs> our listeners. There are so many, yeah, it's a great there question this so week. Many, Very, fantastic so job on writing this week's question, by the way. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, last week was kind of a not not so great, but anyway. Hey, I wasn't here. Let's blame it on yeah. me. Yep, yep, yep. It's your absence that, that caused this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, this week's question from hell, uh, what, uh, what is your god against that you want to see banned for everybody else? Uh, yeah. I saw a Jewish group post, uh, you know, you, have you noticed that, uh, Jews aren't asking everybody to not eat pork? It's mm. <laughs> a mm. pretty good one. Yep. Uh, speaking of which, Steve C. says, religion. How very John Lennon. Uh, Laddie O. says, Disney. Okay. Chris H. says, hair transplants. <laughs> Alexandra C. says, life after death. <laughs> Rudy B. says, cauliflower. Quit wasting time and eat something worthwhile. <laughs> cauliflower mashes. Mashed cauliflower is pretty good. I don't know. I, 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 I like cauliflower. Also, I should mention, because the first question, uh, the first reply we have is a question by David S. who asks, is that Detroit pizza? I am not, my God is not opposed to a Detroit pizza. My God is also not really opposed to Hawaii, Pizza Hawaii. It's just, it's supposed to be a Pizza Hawaii because everybody's like, oh, Pizza uh, they Hawaii. They all hate pineapple. And I, don't really, pizza. I don't really care. It's whatever. Um, Warren L. says, short people. What? <laughs> Jeff C. says, lies. My God bans lying. I mean, I guess okay. the Christian God does too, but Sean L. says, Us usury. All right. Um, in, in, inshallah, I say. I mean, isn't that banned in Islam too? Yeah. Um, 
Elizabeth Johnson says, Up speak and punctuating every other sentence with right by these signs shall you know that these are silly people, <laughs> marked by weakness of speech and given to vain repetitions. Even pretentious affectations and whosoever falls in their path shall wander forever in the midst of everlasting babble. Wow, that sounds very uh, biblical. Oh, yeah. One more. Um... Uh, let me see, let me see, let me see. Um, Sarah M., relative of yours? Yes. Says, uh, headlamps, Michigan lefts, and car alarms. <laughs> Michigan lefts. Again, this week's question from Hal. Tell us one more time, Sebastian. Uh, what is your God against that you want to see banned for everybody else? Post your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, and we will read it on air. The winner gets anything from our merchandise that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper for producing, as well as another edition of Sub Soapbox. Uh, Subs, who is going to be on tomorrow's show? For our upcoming show, for those uh, who are listening our on WNUR. upcoming show is going to be... Oh, I don't have to find an email. Um, I've got it right here. We, oh, we're against right the clock. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Law scholars and Dre Cummings and Calvin Graham will be on to talk about their writing and uh, that appeared in the Tulsa Law Review, Racial Capitalism and Race Massacre, Tulsa's Black Wall Street and Elaine's Sharecroppers. And then we're going to have more law scholars, as I was mentioning in our, during our conversation with Dean Starkman. Joseph Fishkin and William E. Uh, Forbath will discuss their Boston Review article based on their new book, uh, Make Progressive Politics Constitution again. We must reject the legal liberalism that attempts to cordon off constitutional questions from democratic politics. Uh, I hope you can all join us this Saturday, July 23rd, for the opening of This Is Art, the This Is Hell sponsored uh, art show that hasn't been around since 2019 because of the pandemic, but returns this weekend during the 50-year celebration of Carrie's Lounge. That's all happening beginning at 2 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue here in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. And of course, as always, we will have the uh, rotten history from Ronaldo Magaldi tomorrow and a moment of truth later on this week from Jeff Dorchin. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>